season two of Immigration and Travel. Uh, this is where I'm going to collect stories from different people from different parts of the world about their immigration stories uh, and travel stories. Um, today, I have a very, very special guest. We have Ithar. She is from the country of Sudan, uh, which is a country that is located in the um, eastern part of Africa. It is located below Egypt, um, and it is actually um, a country that has it's one of two Sudans. It's we have the mainland Sudan and we have South Sudan, um, but we're going to focus on, on on mainland Sudan uh, in April of this year. Um, some some tensions started to to, to boil, and uh, the country is now in civil war. The country, just to explain to you guys what how this country is, there's about forty five million people. We're talking about a country that has a lot a lot of people. It's the third biggest country in Africa and it used to be uh, a big king kingdom uh, way back in the day they actually had Egypt um, so what you know is Egypt now that used to be Sudan if you've ever thought about pyramids you tend to think about Egypt but Sudan has more pyramids in Egypt and um, it, it is it, ha it was also taken over by the British for a long period from 1899 to 1956 so um it is a country that at the time during British rule was ruled as two separate Sudans. So if you ever wonder why everything eventually separated into two countries, it's because the British treated the country as two separate entities. But that will be a story for another day. Uh, I wanted to explain to you guys really quick how, the, how this uh, civil war started. Uh, there's a central government in Sudan, and then there is a paramilitary group in Sudan. Uh, a paramilitary group is usually a militia that's formed by an unofficial forces. Uh, and a lot of times these forces are against governments, if you look at other countries. Uh, but in this case, what the Sudanese government uh, and central military did was they uh, worked with this paramilitary group. And this group was called the RSF. Um, and they um, would hire the RSF or they would work with the RSF to commit a lot of different acts. Uh, there was genocides. There was um, just thousands of atrocities that you couldn't even fathom um, that happened in Sudan. And, and these acts were mostly carried out by the RSF. Right before this conflict, though, there was a big uh, leader, a dictator who ruled for 30 years in Sudan, and he was finally crumbled in, in 2019. There was a lot of protests, a lot of movements. And in 2019, uh, a 30-year dictatorship came to an end and that when that happens a country tends to remain unstable uh, different forces will try to take over which did happen a prime minister was installed things seem to be going a little bit better going from a dictatorship into a democratic nation but then the military kind of started uh, wanting more power uh, and the prime minister left and for about two three years we've had what kind of ended up and what's happening now. We have a military that took over the, the country and this RSF, this paramilitary group that they used to have so much, you know, uh, work with, they are now fighting against each other. So the two leaders are now fighting against each other. And this has forced so many people to flee the country. We're talking about one of the poorest countries in the world that has been suppressed at least for the last hundred years in so many different ways. So I know that was a long introduction. Uh, Ithar, I apologize for such a long introduction. I wanted to encapsulate the history of this country into modern day 
uh, events as quickly as possible, but it's really hard. So first of all, how are you doing right now? And where are you right now? Well, I would say I survived. And it's very hard to say how am I doing or any Sudanese person is doing right now. And I'm in UAE, in Emirates, United Arab Emirates. United Arab Emirates is, is a place that is known for having so many migrants, um, which is this is an immigration podcast it's another topic of conversation mm-hmm. but um where were you specifically started how did it start what was the first thing you heard did you live through it did you hear something what 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 was it that you woke up from one day uh, one day to the next and it, and it all started well it it started as a a very pleasant morning. I was having breakfast with my mom and coffee. And I was supposed to go to the University of Khartoum because I have a lecture after that. And right after we finished our coffee, I started up or I started uh, um, to prepare myself for leaving. Uh, while I was getting dressed, I started hearing the the crossfire and it was very heavy. There were like a lot of bombs and air raids and clashes and I started feeling that the house is shaking itself. And there were bullets everywhere. I ran to the, my mom was in the living room. I ran to the living room and I told my mom, mom, I don't know what's going on, but this is so serious. We have to leave. And then my neighbors ran into our house because they were in the street when the the crossfire started. And we were like, we don't know what's going on. I. Luckily, I had a similar experience when I was uh, working in the refugee camp uh, between Ethiopia and Sudan uh, during the Tehran war as a humanitarian worker. So the first thing I did, I told my like, listen, we are going to leave. It's not safe anymore. And I don't know if it's ever going to be safe again. So I started picking my... Um, my documents, passport, and stuff like that. I prepared mm-hmm. an emergency bag. I put it beside the door just to wait until they, they stop the shooting and then we leave. They never stopped shooting for five days continuously. My mom was extremely traumatized and this house is all what we got and if you have ever paid mortgage, you know how it feels to lose what you have at the blink of an eye after paying too much money into something. And I wouldn't call it like, it's a very small, teeny, tiny house in a very, um, let's say, modest area. But it meant the world to her. It was her house and her home. Her people are around, her friends and family. And she was so shocked and she started 
saying to me, I'm not leaving. This is my home. They cannot drop me from everything I have. I'm not leaving. And I was like, mom, this is serious. And then she was like, we don't have a home anywhere else. Where will we go? How are we going to live? And what am I supposed to do then? I I don't know. I'm not leaving. And I have been trying to convince her for three days continuously. And at night, the, they shoot even heavier. And we used to like close the door and put mattresses behind and sleep on the floor under the beds. And she was so scared and but she didn't know where to go, what to do. She all she knows that this is her house and she has nowhere else to go. So in the next morning I was still trying to convince her to leave, but she was still insisted. So she was like, okay, um, I know you're saving some cash for an, for an emergency. Let's get some food supplies and then stay indoor. But we couldn't even leave to get any food because crossfire was everywhere. Even the shops in my area were robbed or bombed. And you cannot go to any store. There is nowhere to go, literally. So I was like, okay, we're going to use the remaining ones, mom. Okay, I promise you, we will get back once things are calm. But I don't mind losing the house, but I don't want to lose you, no matter what. I wish I died before you, so please don't put me through this. I cannot leave you. I'm not leaving without you, and we cannot stay. We should leave. It's no longer safe. Then I uh, I talked to my neighbors and we agreed to leave all of us together. And then the next morning we gathered all our saving, which wasn't like too much, but it was too much because of our currency is uh, pretty much low in comparison to the USD. But all the money we had, we were, it was less than, than $500. And it was just enough to, for us to get um, a bus or like a small minibus to go somewhere else away from the conflict zone. And uh, let me say that we were not, like we were not living the worst case scenario. There were people who are in the front line who their houses were like directly bombed, who lost their family and loved one. We had neighbors who lost their father and we still don't know whether he's still, he's alive or I don't know, arrested or killed. And those children are left with no one to support them and they don't even have money at home and they don't know where to go. So that that's so, something that I, that I that I read is like there's a lot of displacement inside of the country. So many times we think of many times we think of refugees as people who leave their country to to find uh, stability elsewhere. But 
we sort of forget that, you know, young people that don't enough, they don't know who to ask, they, they become displaced in their own country. And so what happens to these, and especially you, because I know your, your job um, in the past and, and, and even up to, to now, you've been a person who's helped other refugees and who's helped uh, so many different people in hu- humanitarian ways. So what happens to the, the displaced people inside of a country? Are they just kind of floating around, trying to eat, trying to find something? Like, what happens to them? Many of them, because, as I told you, because we are a community that try to help each other as much as we can, many people open their houses, but there was not enough space to everyone. 24 million people were forced to leave. 24 million people were forced to leave what? The country or their house? Their houses. They are internally displaced because of the conflict. That is a lot of a lot of people. Imagine 24 like, million people. Yeah. And the conflict has extended to seven other areas, not only the capital. Oh, what what are the biggest cities in, in, in Sudan besides Khartoum? There is Madani, Al Ubayyid, Al Fashir, Niyala. Four of them are already um in are in conflict zones. Like Al Ubayyid, Al Fashir, Niyala are in conflict zones. And uh, people are left to flee either to the east or to the north side of the country, which was pretty much marginalized and there is no a lot of development. Like there are no proper hospitals, there is no job opportunities, there is no even basic infrastructure. The roads are terrible, honestly. And when this conflict erupted, many people lost their life, not only because of the direct shooting, but also because of lack of access to health facilities. There are people who are suffering from kidney failure, children who are suffering from cancer, Many people died because they couldn't uh, get their medication. And there are still many people who are suffering because health facilities are not operating. Just a week ago, my aunt passed away because she needed an operation. And the hospital in Madani, that's another state, not Khartoum, don't have the medical supply to conduct a very uh let's say a small operation for like she broke her elbow and that started to to have other side effects as we couldn't get any medication for her and it was not possible to do an operation because the the emergency rooms are not ready the operations rooms are not ready and there are no medical supplies as well so you can imagine the size of the catastrophe. So uh, when and we were so leaving, tough to hear. That is very. I'm sorry yeah. to hear about your aunt's death. Um, it's it's tough to. Uh, it's really tough to listen. It's. Yeah, it's really hard. No, and I'm so sorry. It really, it really. It's tough to hear. Um, and yeah, there's a lot of instability, but we're. You know what? You know what shocks me the most mm-hmm. is how big Sudan is. It's such a big country. 
there are so many people that are affected and yeah, 24 million it, it, just, it, it, it was already in not the best situation so it's like sometimes it makes you think well it can't get any worse than this and then exactly yeah. i was just about to say that whenever we saw like it can't get any worse we 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 like we get shocked by how terrible it could be how bad it could be actually and uh, as a young person who was forced to leave his house had no job and nowhere to go in such situation and not only that i was also responsible for my mom and my old aunts and we had children of our neighbors who are left alone with no one to look after them so it was really terrible leaving Khartoum. we hardly like found a car with all the money that we had and who could take us to another state where we had relatives that we could stay with for a while so so in that sorry to ask in, in that situation are you thinking i'm leaving the country or do i first go to a different city that is not as badly affected or in that case are you thinking immediately no i'm leaving the country because i don't know what's going to happen well the first thing you want to do is to stay alive before thinking about anything else so i was thinking like I don't want to die because I don't know what will happen to my mom if anything happened to me. And I don't want her to suffer from anything. So we were just looking for the very basic thing of just staying in a safe place where you, where you don't see bullets coming from your window or your neighbor house are bombed or dead bodies like on the street. That was like the very first thing I was thinking about. I just needed to be safe. So when we were leaving, it was the first time for me to see a dead body, like a human being on the road. Thousands of people, they are strong, like their bodies are strong on the road, bleeding. You don't know whether they are still alive or dead. You cannot even help them. You cannot go back. You cannot go to a hospital. It, it was terrible. It was very traumatizing experience. And they are just left there. They are like, they are nothing. Like they are not a human being. Like they, they are not nobody's friend or family or father or daughter. So that was really terrible. But, and the worst part is like, you have to walk out of this area to get to a safe area, seeing all these things around you and still Try not to be insane while well, everything around you is insane. So that was terrible. I have a friend whose aunt lost, like she lost her sense. She became crazy and she just ran and left her children alone because she saw a dead body and a dog was eating a human being on the street. Oh. So she just ran and then we couldn't find her until now. It has been two months now since she went, she got crazy and we still cannot find her. So we had to live in this context and try to, to stay strong and focused and move 
while it was still so hard and we were trying to cover the children's eyes from what they are seeing around them. And we got to the to the first safe city after like five hours by car. So we got to Madani in Al Jazeera state and and then it's like we don't know anyone there and it's not our area but it's the nearest safest place and then we asked some relatives to help us to get to to Gadari. Yeah, this is where my my relative live it's a city uh, close to the Ethiopian border in east of Sudan so the entire journey is around nine hours so there's all this happening are there buses running or are you somebody getting the car no. and filling it with people? It's like, you just got to have exactly. to grab a car and you, people are like, let's go, let's go, let's go. Let's go. And for expensive prices, like you can literally pay all your life trying saving. To, in trying to make a, a money from it, even though it's a exactly. desperate situation. Mm -hmm. So no, the bus are not running. We had to... We had to, like, even the buses which are running, they are commercial, and they charge over $2,000 for one passenger. How much? 2000 USD for one passenger. And uh, to get them to Egypt or somewhere else. And the worst part is, it's like, this happened, this conflict erupted all of a sudden, Many people do not have any saving anywhere. There is no access to phone or internet connections most of the time. Uh, online banking is not working and no one could reach a branch. In fact, the rapid support forces robbed all the branches. They robbed the banks. Yeah, they did drop all the banks in Sudan. Or particularly in Khartoum and the areas they attacked. So this was the situation. You, you can even go to an ATM. There is no ATM on the road. You cannot go to the bank. Online banking is not working. And if you're lucky if you had some savings somewhere under your mattress at home. So that was the case for me. I had some money saved at home and we just took it and we, we collected all the money we had there. And we were at the situation where we had to buy our ties. Who will leave? Who will stay? Literally, because my neighbor had to leave her uh, her two old uh, sons. They are around 24 and 27. Because at this stage, we didn't have enough money for everyone to leave. And then when we got to Gadarif, we then again had to, I don't know, get away to send them some money so that they could leave. I can't believe I know... these people try to help each other this but um think about that uh money people that are trying to survive and and they charge that much money but i guess in those in those situations people are looking after themselves too like well i have to survive i'm leaving everything behind mm -hmm. if i'm gonna charge this might be the last amount of money I make who knows until when but um, mm -hmm. 
it's it's horrible to think about war. But you know what? You know what? There's there's a book that I'm reading that's called Sapiens, and I know to think as humanity. Sorry, we like to think of humanity as like state or since the beginning of humans every single day workers from empire after empire group after group family between family we are this is just something i'm reading animals we're like animals and for the most majority of our time. I comprehend because I don't want any conflict. Millions of people don't want any conflict. So I think humans have evolved to a point where too smart to conflict. Conflict is a bit stupid because that doesn't solve anything. Yeah, our, our our people like us who've had the, the 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 blessing of of going to school and getting an education, we realize that talking things out is the best way. We don't need to use our hands. We don't need to use anything to solve anything. Like, so I think humanity is moving in the right direction, but it's just the people power of all the countries in the world and the people that are doing after the wrong things. violence to achieve just what they want so i think the future is going to get better because i do know the last hundred years Me too. The, least, the last hundred years of humanity have been have been the least uh wars in in, in the history of, of humanity so i do think we're improving but it's crazy to think about what your country has gone through because it half of that it's hard to think that even before the war even with a dictator you couldn't have a lot of freedom of speech there was not enough uh, opportunities so it was like we should all give us humans to each other like food housing or at least you know forget that an opportunity to work because most most humans don't I'll do a job to get to get some money, you know. Okay. But Horace and these people that are just obsessed with power, they don't even give you the basics. What? Why? This is my perspective. I don't understand. Do you have any idea why these people? But it's like okay, have that much money, but at least give us a little bit of something. And they just don't. They suppress. Mm -hmm. They leave you hungry. They kill you. They genocide. Why? Why? What is your opinion? You, your perspective is so different than mine. So why do you think this is? Mm. I think it's a matter of prioritization for them. It's like human life is not their priorities. At all. It's, it's, a, it's a matter of sensibility, huh? Because when you're sensitive to something you don't do it. Like I'm sensitive to seeing people dying because I've never been in a situation where I've seen people dying. But I think maybe 
we did that and they do it a couple of times and it just becomes normal. I just, it's so hard. For me uh, I, I honestly don't know how could someone has the nerve to kill someone, even an animal, not a human being. Exactly. I'm someone who is, who has phobia from blood. I, I faint whenever I see blood. So you can, you can feel how this journey was terrible on me. It's like, uh, my brain is dizzy. I am almost fainting, but no, I have to stay awake because I don't know what will happen. It was pretty much too much pressure. Honestly, when we we talk about war, the worst part is that we as human beings, our life, our aspiration, what we are, all our achievement, not, let's not even say achievement, our simple life, our very basic things, I'm not considered. No one, like, imagine with all the hard work you did, your college years, your struggle with exam, you finally made it and got your P bachelor degree, and then you are struggling with the dark future, trying to make something. All that turns into nothing. Who you are, who's your family, how much they struggle to educate you, all your aspiration of having a better future, your career goals, all this mean nothing when you are in war. And the worst part, the entire thing is considered as collateral damage. So you don't even matter as a human being. So uh, this was really tough for me. And then when we went to Gadari, I first realized how much it affected me when one of my relative children uh, closed the door of the fridge and I ran immediately without even thinking. You mean the thump noise and it, you thought something was happening? Yeah. He just yeah. closed the door of the fridge and I ran immediately. It's uh, yeah. right because just as I explained to you, humans have always been in, in conflict you would think we would be adapted to it a little bit but it's not the case because you no, just said it or and then even afterwards if you survive you honestly i don't think any of us now. would survive this not even at emotional level uh, not even at psychological level we do need like truly we need therapy from all the the catastrophes that traumatizes in Sudan, like this war was the worst ever happened in Sudan, honestly. It was so cruel, so inhumane. And I did work in conflict areas when I was working for, when I was working at the refugee camp with Ethiopian refugees during the Tigray war. But it wasn't as bad as that one, never at all. Like, no one was attacked as civilian, and no one disregarded the presence of civilians in the area. That is, uh, yeah, and, and it's crazy, you know, because, I mean, you you help these people who've gone through it, and then now you have to go through it. And, it and is so crazy. ironic. Yeah, let me tell you about that, you know. Uh, when I was in the camp, 
I used to tell, I, I used to supervise nine staff. And then like some children or some people will come at night and knock on the door, ask for something, maybe an extra blanket, maybe some food, maybe someone has just arrived to the camp. Some of the young, uh, some of the beginner stuff, they used to like, oh, I don't want to work at night. And I'll be like, hey, be kind to them. Don't even show that attitude when you go out there. You better put a smile or you are fired. Because you don't know what these people have been through. They woke up one day and they lost everything. Their houses, their certificate, who they are, their future. And all of a sudden, they are now identified by a token number, just a number provided by the UNHCR saying you are a refugee and you deserve this amount of food. And it's not even enough. So please be kind to them. And if they ask for anything, just give them whatever they need at any time. Or even call me if you cannot handle the workload. But don't, don't do that to them. Imagine if you were at their shoes. So ironically, I never thought I would be on their shoes one day. Never. So tell me about uh, what it what it's like to to now have moved to the United Arab Emirates. So how did you how did you end up in the UAE? Oh, that's another journey. So after we fled to Gadari, um, near to the Ethiopian border. So you, you fled towards Ethiopia. Yeah, so I I was staying with my mom in Gadar near the border. It's a safe city. Um, okay. it's not like uh, it's not in the war zone. I hope it it will not be. And then I had to work for a couple of days at whatever job available, just to secure some money to go across the border, travel from Ethiopia to UAE. I have a friend in UAE, you know, I used to work, I told you, I used to work here at the university at some stages. Yes. So I had a colleague, um, once the war escalated in Sudan, they contacted me and they were like, are you in Sudan? I said, yes. And they were like, get out. And I was like, I'm trying. It's not like you're leaving a room. Yeah. And then they were like, then uh, they sent me um, a visa and... Um, who was it that sent you this? I'm sorry, who... who, who uh... My friend. Your, your friend who was located where? She's working in UAE. She's from Greece. Oh, she's working in UAE. Right, right, right. Okay, yep. And she's from Greece. And when the war escalated in Sudan, she, uh, she was asking me, how am I doing? What am I planning to do and then she was like you know what I'm so sorry but come here and look for any job anyways you are staying in Gadarik doing any job available you better come here and the income rate is much higher than than in Sudan definitely so I was like okay then the the worst part is like while I was working in Gadarik I couldn't collect enough money to to manage to leave the country, me and my mom together. So unfortunately, I had to leave her in Gadarif, in the border between Sudan and Ethiopia. And then- How do you spell this, this, this city name? I just want to be able to locate it on a map. How do you spell it? 
I may have gotten it. Qatar. No, I don't think it's the same. Would it be okay if I sent you the map on WhatsApp? It would be easier. I think it's E L G. Okay. okay. Uh, A D. Okay. A R I F. Oh, Gadari. Yeah. Gadari, Sudan. Oh, Al Qadarif. Al Qadarif, yeah. And so this is where you fled and you started to work and save up money to go to the UAE. Yeah. First, to go to Ethiopia through the border. But no. It looks like Ethiopia. it's got some crazy mountains, huh? It's got some crazy mountains in the back. It is. The journey was horrible. I nearly died. Wait, what what was horrible? The the journey to Ethiopia was horrible. I nearly died. Really? How was the journey? Okay, so I'm gonna send you a picture of the place, uh the border area. So I had to save some money. I needed around three hundred USD to move just from Gadari to Ethiopia. So Gadarif is right on the border, right? Like, are, are we talking once you cross Gadarif, you're in Ethiopia, or you have to go through the mountains of Gadarif to reach Ethiopia? You have to go through the mountain of Gadarif and the mountain of Ethiopia. The entire journey is around 13 hours. By foot, obviously. Yeah, so it's like, it takes nine hours from Gadarif until you reach Gundar, the first the city in Ethiopia, but the journey is not that smooth, and I have to sleep over in the border. It was terrible. And then, how many people were you with? Was there thousands of people doing the same journey? Million. Millions. Yeah. And why did people not flee towards Egypt? First, they closed the border. Secondly. The procedures is like terrible. Many people didn't have ID. And even at Ethiopia, the procedures were hard, but I was prepared. I had all my documents. I had an invitation from a friend in UAE and a visa, so it was easier. But not all the bordering countries has opened their borders. They even so made it harder, except chat. Chad opened their borders for civilians, and they even, like, the military has immediately assigned an entire department just to serve the refugees from Sudan, providing them with food and relocating well, go, them. Go Chad. Go Chad, you know. I didn't know Chad had the biggest heart in, 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 the, in, in all those countries. Yeah. Egypt closed the border, and they even raised the fees for the visa. And they complicated the process as well. I mean, that's because Egypt doesn't want to deal with Sudan's problem, right? Mm, I don't know. <laughs> Honestly, I don't know what they were thinking about. But it's a humanitarian situation. It you is. Know, like, I'm not asking you like, to fall in love with them or marry them. It's just a humanitarian situation. You need to help the people. And... Only 
honestly, frankly speaking, the people who managed to to flee to Egypt or to neighboring countries, those are the people who could afford the journey leaving conflict true. areas. Thousands true. of people are still trapped in conflict zone and they don't even have access to basic needs like food and medication. You're absolutely right. It's the people who even have a little bit of money to make the trip because you can't make that trip, especially having said that people charge you for every transportation because they know you ha it's like a, a matter of life or death and people are willing to give up all their money just to get out um how was the i was crossing so okay so i'm, I'm gonna look at a map again why the people so you, you could flee to chad you could flee to egypt you could flee do you think people fled to south sudan because yeah south they sudan did. Oh, honestly, thank you for reminding me. South Sudan also opened their border for receiving Sudanese people, and their their uh, minister of foreign affairs uh, made the strongest statement in the news, saying that our Sudanese sisters and brothers are highly welcome in their second country, and we will stand by them in their plight. Because you know the thing was a politician conflict, wasn't a conflict between two. Exactly. ethnic group or two religious group at all exactly you also border Eritrea and you border well that's it you, you border Central African Republic as well where do you yeah. think so just for the listeners or the viewers so Sudan is bordered by Egypt to the north Chad to the east to the west and then Eritrea and Ethiopia to the west, but then that would be South Sudan who borders mm -hmm. Uganda, right? Because the mm -hmm. main main Sudan does main Sudan border the CAF? The Central, yeah, Central African Republic. Yeah. Okay, so what what do you think most people did, like that had the means to to depart? Did they try to go to Egypt? Did they try to go to Chad? Was it just dependent on what closest border? Depending on their location. Like people in Khartoum, they try to flee to uh, they try to flee to the north direction if they are closer to the north. Because also Khartoum is divided into three different towns. People okay. like in the south, they fled to Medani or to White Nile area, people in the north flee to Egypt, and then people in the western region because there are four cities terribly attacked in um, in west of Sudan: Jinana, Fasher, and um, Al Ubaid. They also attacked Al Ubaid and Niala. They literally burned people alive to that extent. Why is the RSF, and just to remind everybody, this conflict is between the central government and RSF, which used to, they used to work together. And the RSF is already used to committing these atrocities. What, what is their main point? I mean, are they just trying to, why are they killing civilians? Don't they want to keep civilians I, to form part of this new government? Is it just like, 
I don't, they don't even care about government. They just want to like, why are the people getting killed? Well, first of all, as I told you, they are nomad groups who are basically uh, forming like milit troops all across the continent. And they are always associated with, is, um, with wars and crimes. And they, as I told you earlier, when you asked me, what is the best case scenario if the RSF win the war? So yeah, they are planning to like to, to establish their own kingdom. They call it a genet. And essentially in their plan is to kill anyone who has like, who's a purely African race. Like also the Nier people, all Chadian people, or Mali people, or Niger people. And if there are some black people in uh, in Libya, they wouldn't mind killing them as well. So for those people like us who, who don't know Sudan too well, and I know you mentioned it, what are the differences in ethnicities in Sudan? Does it matter uh, based on the, the location of, of, of the peoples? Um, because most It does matter, yeah. They are like Afro-Arab mix, and there is a pure Asian group, which are purely African, okay? There are some other like Somalian people who were, or Eritrean or Ethiopian who were brought to Sudan by the colonizers, worker, even Indian. And then they stayed and became part of the population. And so the RSF is, do they not have military or do they not have people of all different races? Like, why are they so obsessed with No, they are off? one tribe. They're one tribe. The RSF is literally one tribe. Okay. So that helps yeah. me understand a lot more. So the RSF is one tribe. And they're tri oh, so they're yeah, it's, they're just, that's why they're committing genocide. They just want to. Oh, man. That is, uh, that is so, so crazy. That is so, so crazy. Yeah. Anyways, let's, let's go back to your story, though, because I want to hear about what this trip to Ethiopia. So you were in Khartoum, which is more more east. So you naturally fled to Ethiopia. How, how long did you stay in this border city of, um, and, I, and I forget the name, I'm so sorry. The uh, Yeah, yes. I stayed for almost two months in Gadari. Yeah. Uh, just to work and gain some money to move to Ethiopia. What was your job? What did you work in? Uh, anything available. Teaching, um, babysitting, cleaning. I really was focused on getting out. So I took any job available for me. I I was once considering tea selling, but my mom was like, no, this is against uh, tea. <laughs> Sorry? You said to sell tea? That's what you were considering? Yeah. Uh -huh. yeah. So okay. I did anything available, literally. I did like surveys for rapid assessment with uh, with national organizations. I also teach part-time. I babysit and I did... Oh. Uh, no problem. I hope you can cut that in the editing. Yes. And sorry, what were you teaching? I teach English, math, German language, and what else? I'm sorry. Can you see me? Because I'm struggling. I, I, I can see you, but you are. Or, okay, I can see you better now. Yes, you're good now. Oh, 
have a lot of editing to do later on. No, it's fine. We'll leave this on. It's okay. <laughs> um, yeah. So you're an English teacher. Okay. And now let's get to the part where you cross the mountains to get mm -hmm. to Ethiopia. These are very tall mountains, right? It's a very dangerous trip. Is that is that right? Yeah. Yes, it is. And the procedures take so long to the extent that you might sleep several nights at the border. I stayed for three days in the border before reaching the Ethiopian capital. Tell me a little bit about what it's like to cross those mountains though. Like, are you taking a backpack with you? How much food are you taking? I mean, it's a shorter trip than a lot of other, because I know a lot of other bike mm -hmm. routes around the world, they take months. This one mm -hmm. takes 13 hours, you said. So, so is there a possibility to die and how do people die? I mean, it doesn't seem like it's long enough to go hungry or is it accidents? Like what, what is the danger? So luckily for me, as I told you, I had some saving and I took a mini bus from Gadarif to, to the Ethiopian border. And then from there, you cannot cross with the bus. You have to cross the border walking and okay. then go to the other side and start your visa procedures and then after finishing your visa procedures you can go to to the other side you walk like uh, a little bit till you get to the buses area and then you take you take a minibus for uh, for the, like around 20 us dollar to the capital not to the capital, sorry, to Gunder, a city near to the capital. Ah, okay. Gunder, and then, yeah. And then from Gunder, you either take the, take an airplane, like for around 100 USD, or okay. yeah, to the, to the, um, to the capital Addis Ababa. Or you yeah. take bus and it's another very long trip as well. Okay, so it's yeah, around Adis, ten hours or more. Addis Ababa is is right in the center of the country, and um, what what is the treatment of the Ethiopians towards the Sudanese? Uh, how, how, was it good? Did you feel like they were supporting you because they knew what was happening? Right, you said you waited three days at the border. No, it wasn't honestly. Um, first, I had to take permission from the Sudanese authority to leave. Even at this war situation, I had to take a permission, uh, proving that I have a visa to another country and uh, yeah, I can travel. Cause, um, and then at the border, there are delegated missions from UNHCR and IOM which might help you register, but they are more concerned uh, with uh, taking the refugees, the Ethiopian refugees who used to live in Sudan back to Ethiopia. Oh, really? That, that, yeah. That's who they prioritize. Yeah. But as Sudanese, it was really a tough journey. You barely find any support and the procedures are so complicated and the place is terrible. It was so hot and so humid at the same time. I'm not used to that weather. The place was not clean. The food is not good at all. And 
I, I will send you later some pictures of the area and even the place where I slept and how the area entirely looked like. It's really terrible. And I'm not used to that. <laughs> I'm not really used to that. So it's it was like, I don't know. Even when I was trying to act like it's okay, it's normal, it's a part of the process, everything in me was telling me it's not, it's not how it should be. This is not how a human being should be treated. So, so discrimination from the from the people there, and like from the officials. Yeah, it. I mean, like, yeah, the procedures were too long, and that's not fair. I'm someone who's fleeing war. You shouldn't put me in another drama to just cross the border. Right. right. You should at least make the process easier. In the state of asking for thousands of supporting documents, and even. Like, why would you ask someone who's fleeing war to to pay like fees or processing fees? Do you know what they run out with? Like, okay, I was able to get some jobs and then like afford to get the visa, but I I swear that thousands of families do not have that money. Thousands of families were not even able to leave the complex zones in the first place. Um, so then you get to Addis Ababa, and then are you? Did you take a flight from there to the UAE, or or what happened? Yeah, I went to before I reached to Addis Ababa. I stayed in the Laba, the the border where you get the visa and the permission. Okay. And I stayed for three days. The process is taking forever, and then, um, the buses. Leaves from Gun from uh, from Gallaba to Gunder, the next big city, like only once every day at one. If your procedures are finished by one, oh no, by twelve actually, twelve uh, p.m. So if your procedures are finished by twelve p.m., you're good to go. If not, you'll stay for another day. Oh wow! Yeah. So I stayed for three days. The place was so hot, so humid. Uh, I had malaria because of the weather. Oh, no. I, yeah, I'm, I started becoming so feverish, and I fainted nearly three times there. Oh, my goodness. This was... And although I had some was, food and water with me, but still, the weather was terrible, and... Uh, it wasn't, the hygiene practice in the area wasn't that good. Because even, I don't know, even the water you wash your body with is not clean enough. So you spent three days there. Yeah. And the very nice five-star hotel in the area is a small shanty house with, uh, with, I don't know, without even a gate. You mean that city is quite poor? They doesn't have. Sorry? You mean the city you stayed in? It's not a very evolved city. Not a very evolved city. Yeah, the the Galabat area, the area where you cross the border to Ethiopia, was very terrible. Uh, as I told you, it was hot, humid. Hygiene was really terrible. The environment was terrible, and. The, it was a small shanty town and even like 
uh, they have one, I think it's like kind of, um, I wouldn't call it a hotel either, like a small hostel where you rent a room for around $30. And while you're sitting on the bed, you can see like insects and I don't know. Outside you can see uh, snails. On the area and small insects and yeah, it was a terrible place to stay. And I, and my skin is so allergic. I had like I was sitting on the bed literally the whole day until the morning. I couldn't sleep. And then um the day after after they completed my procedure, I took my passport. I was waiting, you know, since the early morning until twelve for the bus. And then they started the security check before the bus leave. While they were doing the security check, I I started feeling I'm not okay. I, I was praying, oh God, please. I don't want to die here. My mom still needs me. So please save myself for another year. It will be enough. Even if it's my time now to leave just another one more year. Because I cannot leave my mom in such a situation. And then um i start feeling worse and worse every now and then and at some point uh, i was alone no one was with me there is a lot of spilling and snatching in the border area so i have to keep my things very carefully and then i was feeling dizzy and then i started feeling like everything is black and then i started vomiting and then i i looked to a group of people i was staying beside the car alone and then there was a group of Sudanese young people who are also leaving to 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 Kundar, the next big city. So I went to them and I was like, I just said to them, I don't feel okay. And then they said like, why? What's wrong? And then I fainted immediately before I even say anything. So they are. Oh. There, there was no nearby hospital or clinic. They just like have to to put some water on me to to reduce my temperature my yeah my body temperature and then i think i was fainted for more than 20 minutes and they took my stuff and then changed my clothes and then they were like you know this is not a place to stay and you are so sick. We're not leaving you behind. Just give us your family contact in case something happened to you and where they are. So I give them my my family contact, my two sisters and my mom contact. And I told them, please don't call them unless it is really so bad. But otherwise, don't. They are already worried. So yeah. and then we left, we left together to Gunder. My temperature, oh, honestly, the view of the mountain was amazing. But with the humidity and me feeling sick and I cannot breathe because of the height, it was terrible for me. I used to faint every few minutes and my, my temperature was so high to the extent that, you know, the entire seat was hot. Like, even the people sitting next to me couldn't sit next to me because of my temperature. Oh my gosh. Yeah, it was that bad. And 
then I was thinking, uh, when we reached to Gunder, the first thing they did, luckily they stayed with me. And then they took me to the, because we are new, we don't know the language. Oh, yes, we do have some local money, but we don't know where to go, where we are going to sleep the night, how are things going. And they they still have someone with them, a girl who's nearly dying and without anyone accompanying her. And then we went in Gunder from place to another looking for a pharmacy or a clinic. Finally, we found the pharmacy and then they gave me some medications like for malaria and fever. And then we went and had some food and I slept. I wasn't able to leave the bed for the coming two days because of the fever. And they stayed the whole two days with me. Oh, wow. Yeah. It was a group That's... of seven people. And they were, you said they were all young, right? Yeah, um, between 25 to 30, around that age. All young Sudanese people who were first to leave their families behind and go look for a better place where they can work and then bring their families. Okay, and then can you walk me through when you left for the UAE after being in Ethiopia? How long did you stay there? Yeah, I stayed for uh, four days only. Just uh, once I started feeling well, um, I went, I got the ticket to UAE directly and I fly to UAE. And then my journey of job search is starting. The thing that's, um, that's really... <sighs> Frustrating me the most is like my mom is away and I don't know, I don't, I'm not there with her. I cannot even help her with the very basic things. And whenever I go for an interview, I feel like, oh, okay, so that's a chance. I don't think like, I don't have the luxury of thinking, oh, that's a good job where I can, you know, advance my career or have a better opportunities. No, I feel like, oh, it's a step closer toward bringing my mom to the UAE to a safe place and stay together. And whenever I get a rejection or like um, an email notifying me that I'm not selected, I feel like, oh, no, still gonna wait for some time. But it's really hard. So you, you, you haven't been able to find a job there yet? Sorry? You have not been able to find a job in the UAE yet? Not yet. I've arrived here like a month ago. Okay, so you just arrived. I mean, I think I think you have time in your hands, but I thought it was a little bit easier to find jobs there. It takes time, you know. The recruitment process might take around three, three to six weeks. Okay, and I'm applying like I'm applying all the time, but yeah, until I get a job. The thing is, like, it wouldn't be an issue if I wasn't in that given situation. Yeah, there are a lot of job opportunities, but the thing is, like, if I didn't have that ongoing situation, I would give it at least a three month period for me to get a job. Right, right. If, yeah, 
then job searching and then seeing if that available opportunities align with your career map or not and then apply and go through the entire procedures uh, you know it might take three weeks until you get like an offer and so on but uh, because of my current situation it's like this is why it make it so critical like every job interview for me it's like i'm just trying to put you through the feeling of someone who's who just fled the war and trying to get his family with him and still trying to stay like stable and apply for a job and going through interviews while you are still traumatized and you still cannot sleep at night because of the pictures of the dead body you saw on the way or thinking that does your mom have enough food at home or is it safe where she's staying? Are things going to be okay for her? Does she need anything? How is he feeling right now? So when you go to a job interview, you don't see it as a, just an interview and we'll see how it goes and then later we'll discuss the offer. You see, uh, it's a chance to save my family life. It could be a life-saving opportunity or a death sentence for you. So yeah, that's how severe it is at this stage for any Sudanese person. Well, I feel this way and I I only have to worry about my my mom, bringing my mom with me to a safer place. While she's now still in a good place, let me say, I wouldn't say a good place. It's a safe place but for the time it's being. A, it's a safe place, yeah. Think about how people who has families and children who were forced to drop out of education and someone who has a family who is responsible for providing them with food and shelter and now they lost their job or businesses and don't know what to do, where to go. And especially if they are still in Sudan and trying to figure out how they are going to feed their children for the next day. Where could the children live? Many families are forced to stay in in a very inappropriate places. Like many families stayed in in schools or in in at the mosque or any public places, and they don't even have enough food. They are relying on the support of the people in the area. And imagine like. In one school in Madani, there is 1,020 something families. Imagine how could you live in such a place? Especially if you're having your children with you and what is going to happen or how would that parent feel about it? Yeah, I know it's, um, it's really tough. No, uh, Ithara, I really appreciate you telling us the story because I think it, it, it tells the, the true tale of, of war and family and um, losing um, people around you. Because even if you don't know all of your city, I'll put myself in like a place where it's like Colombia and they attack the capital city of Colombia. I mean, it's, it's just like, I can't believe I would have to walk over dead bodies and, and all of this and um, it's, it's tough to hear and, and, and let's hope that, um, there's could be some, somewhat of a, a solution in Sudan and, and everybody 
at least stops to die you know the, the least we can ask for is people to not die um but it's a tough situation and i'm glad you're able to make it out to uae i, I think you will you'll find a job quite soon and um and you'll be able yeah. to help your family you know just keep the faith and and th good things will happen i'm sure i'm sure they will so no, i i appreciate you um telling us your story the 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 recording is coming to an end, so I, I do have to end uh, the recording here soon. I want to thank you for your time. And uh, yeah, what do you think? If you could just tell me quickly before the recording ends, what is the best way for people to help anybody in, in Sudan at this time? Like, is it to start foundations, send send the money to the Red Cross? Like, how, how is there any way to, for anybody to help if they wanted? Uh, well, uh, basically, there is a huge need for medical supplies in the first place. There are still a lot of people locked in complex zones, and they don't have access to medical supplies and food as well. And then also opportunities. They do need opportunities for jobs. Of course, any donation will make sense to them, no matter whether it is clothes or money or food. And how do we how do we donate? Is it like Western Union MoneyGram? Like, do we just find somebody in in these? And can they still collect the money even though the the war is happening? Or or what's the best? Maybe contact a big organization. Because I was thinking, I want to do my own organization. I don't want to put my money to somebody I don't know what they're gonna do with, with the money. Um, exactly. What, what do you think is the best way to send money there? Uh, the best way is, yeah, contact someone from there and then depends on the codes. Like if you want to contribute toward education, then there is a, a use of Sudanese, um, a group of Sudanese youth volunteering toward this cause. And if you want to donate toward medications and food supply, there is another Sudanese group volunteers who are doing that because lately we start feeling stranded and the organization and the government procedures are taking like forever while people are, are in need and we are losing lives every single day. So yeah. Okay, so I'll get in touch with you off off record and, and we can uh, maybe share some links or, or maybe we can discover how we can help people in, in Sudan, but I'm sure there's a way to help at least some people. So uh Ethar, thank you so much once again um this story is is so so uh it's it's so emotional really so i thanks for opening up i i wasn't expecting you to tell so many details I, I know it was hard maybe it was also good for you to get a little bit of information off your chest uh but no i i uh i, I once again thank you so much and, and we're gonna find a, a way to help uh help some people in sudan so Thank you very much. Uh, is there anything you want to say as a final statement? Or I can close now. <laughs> uh, okay. I, well, I thank you for having me. And I just want to ask everyone to pray for Sudan because we're really going through a lot. Absolutely. Thank you so much.